Well, let's pray and we're going to get into Mark chapter 9. 50 verses. So this is one of the longer chapters in the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to make our way through it. And I think if you will stay with me, you will find every single verse to be important to our cross-training. Lord Jesus, bless the teaching of Your Word. I pray that You will give us ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that a lot, but I don't just mean to skip over that as a verse that we repeat, but that You truly would give our ears openness to hear Your Spirit. The ears of our spirits, Lord, to hear You, to digest Your Word, to take it in, all the nutrients, all the sweetness, all the goodness and wholesomeness and wholeness of Your Word, that we might take it in, hear it, apply it, and walk it out. May we join Your first twelve to walk alongside You as Your disciples tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. We're going to begin in Mark chapter 9, actually a little before that. A.T. Robertson said the first rule of Scripture interpretation is to ignore chapter and verse divisions as you study the Bible. Remember, when the Bible was written originally, there were no chapters or verses, the New Testament or the Old Testament. They were scrolls of complete writings. And sometimes the Bible translators doing the best they can to break it down and make it easy for us to find our way around, and that's a blessing. But trying to do that, sometimes they make a division where there really shouldn't be a division. And between chapter 8 and chapter 9 of the book of Mark is one of those examples. There shouldn't be a division here. So follow this through. Chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus is in the middle of talking, cross-training the apostles. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, he's not talking about the rapture of the church there. He's saying, if you're ashamed of me now, if you choose to be ashamed of me, then I will be ashamed of you then. When is then? It's when He comes in His glory. This is after the church has already gone home. Partially because the church is made up of all those who are not ashamed of Jesus. Who love Jesus. Who want to be with Him. Who will do anything to walk where He walks. And so, the church goes home when He calls. But when He comes back in His glory following as Revelation simply puts out the seven-year tribulation here on earth. When he returns at that time, he says, whoever is ashamed of him now or before he returns, he will be ashamed of when he returns. And the looming parallel question that Jesus poses at another time in Luke 18 verse 8 is when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When he comes, when he actually returns, Will he find faith? But in the same breath, not in the next chapter for the next week, but in the same breath Jesus says this, he also turns around and says something incredibly affirming. A very serious exhortation followed by a great affirmation. Verse 1 of chapter 9, Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What is the great affirmation? Men will see the kingdom. The kingdom is going to be seen. There are those who are going to be ashamed of Jesus, but there are going to be those who are not ashamed of Jesus, who love the Lord and who will see the kingdom. And that's the broader scope. But Jesus makes an interesting statement. There are some right there, standing there, present in that company, who He says would see the glorious kingdom come before they died. It's a blessing.
blessed assurance. It's a powerful promise. It's a curious conundrum. (laughs) What's he talking about? What did he mean some would not taste death? Now, if you were standing there in the crowd right then and you heard Jesus say this, the only assumption you could make would be that the kingdom is imminent. That within the lifetime of everybody present, somebody will still be alive at the time that Jesus brings His kingdom rushing into the earth. But it's 2,000 years later and that didn't happen. Every single person present in that company who heard Jesus say that died. And so there are those who are trying to figure this out and understand what does this mean. I was asked on Sunday, what does this mean? What exactly was He talking about? Read on, because the Spirit ties this promise into the very next event that takes place. Verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. The high mountain, I believe, is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon up in the north of Israel. It is the only high mountain in Israel. By definition, there are other mountains all around uh, the Valley of Megiddo. In fact, there are different mounts that if you go to Israel, you'll stand on each one and you get this kind of picture. You go around to each one standing and looking out of the valley and and it's a beautiful panoramic view, but it's not the high mountain, the, the truly high mountain like a mountain we would be used to here in Washington. The only one is Mount Hermon. It's the only one with a ski resort. It's the only one that promises a white Christmas. You know, all the rest of the mountains are smaller, more like large hills. Mount Hermon is 9,232 feet above sea level. There's another mount in Israel that guides will point to and say, this is where the transfiguration of Jesus took place. It's Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor, if you look at it, looks like a camel's back. It sits there on the, on the side of the Valley of Megiddo, and it, it looks like a hump. And it's not that big. In fact, Mount Tabor is 1,886 feet above sea level. 1,800 feet, 9,000 feet, which is the high mountain. And so I believe that the mountain that he takes the apostles up on is Mount Hermon. By the way, another thing, they were at Caesarea Philippi right before this. Caesarea Philippi sits at the southwest corner of Mount Hermon. They're right there. And now they go up the mountain. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them, no matter what whitener you use. Elijah appeared to them, along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now some things to note. Remember, Mark's Gospel is probably Peter's inspired sermons. Mark taking notes on the sermons of Peter given in Rome. That's the assumption we make, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Some we've already talked about. But that being the case, and if that's the case, we need to understand that Peter clearly taught that the transfiguration was a fulfillment of Jesus' statement in verse 1. Peter believed and understood that to be the case. That when Jesus said, there are those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power, Peter saw Jesus transfigured, saw the king. You can't have a kingdom without a king. 
In fact, you could say the king personifies the kingdom, and Peter saw Jesus transfigured, and Peter makes the assumption that's what he's talking about. John makes that same assumption. Well, how do we know Peter makes that assumption? Well, first off, what he says, he wanted to build sukkahs, tabernacles. And we've talked recently, in fact, we had Rich Robinson from Jews for Jesus talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. And how Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, tells us it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the Feast of Booths, Sukkot. To celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. That will be a feast celebrated when the Kingdom comes. Now, Peter would probably have known that. As a Jew, part of the glory of the coming kingdom, every year as all the Jews celebrated Sukkot, they celebrated it looking back to God's provision in the wilderness, but also looking ahead to His coming kingdom. And so, he looks up, he sees Jesus transfigured, he sees Elijah, he sees Moses, he recognized them, by the way. How in the world, he'd never seen them before. Did he have, like, Elijah and Moses baseball cards? How did he know? How did he know? And I'll tell you how he knew exactly how you and I are going to recognize each other. They knew by spirit. We know each other by spirit. We pretty quickly, and most people don't recognize this, but we pretty quickly move beyond physical recognition. And we move to spiritual recognition. Even in this life, we have a tendency to see each other and not to see the blemishes and the hair out of place and, you know, all the goo. We see in spirit. We hear each other's voice. We know who that is. We have this this spiritual capacity, I think, to go beyond just seeing the flesh. But far more so in heaven. And for little children who find out we're going to heaven, how am I going to know who you are, Mommy, Daddy, if if you're not in the same body? And, And we will know. Just as Peter knew that it was Elijah and Moses standing up there, we will know. And so Peter sees those two standing with Jesus transfigured and says, The kingdom has come! His assumption, it's now! But Jesus said, we're not going to taste death, I haven't died, here's the kingdom. And he's so excited. And you might say, well, but Peter was wrong. Right? I mean, he was just overexcited. They didn't see the beginning of the kingdom, no. But they did see the king. They saw how Jesus would look in His glory. For a moment, they caught a glimpse. And He was absolutely right, and get this down, in understanding that the transfiguration personified the coming kingdom. That the Spirit explicitly confirms this. In fact, through both Peter and John, John would write in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw, past tense, we saw His glory. We saw His glory. So, John's referring to the transfiguration there. Peter, in 1 Peter 1.16, said, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by Him, or to Him, by the majestic glory. And then Peter quotes God saying what he, we'll see in just a moment, what he said on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter says, quote, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So in Peter's own words, he tells you right there, 1 Peter 1, 16-18, the transfiguration was what Jesus meant 
in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Although Peter wouldn't have put it that way because there was no chapter and no verse. But that's what Peter believed had just taken place, understood to have taken place. So again, in the transfiguration, we see the representation of the kingdom in the personification of Jesus. Get it? Transfiguration, representation, personification. We see Jesus, we see the kingdom personified in Him. But if you want to be technical, and maybe some of you do, Technically speaking, the kingdom of God had not yet come. What Peter refers to, I'm not saying Peter was wrong, he's right. The representation of the coming kingdom. Jesus glorified, they saw that. But if you look at even the language, back in verse 1, there are those who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The word come there in the Greek, erkomai, is written in the Perfect active participle. Which means, erkomai, come, it means a certain action in the past with results continuing on into the present. In other words, the kingdom having come and continuing on. Well, the kingdom come that Jesus refers to, I think we're talking about something even bigger. I think it was partially fulfilled in the transfiguration. But not completely fulfilled. Were you mincing words, Pastor? No, we've seen plenty of prophecy like this. Partial fulfillment at one time, pointing to the ultimate, the great, the complete fulfillment at another time. The eyewitness account of Peter and John was, in my opinion, partial fulfillment of the fuller promise. So go back to what he said in verse 1. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Was there anyone standing there who would not taste death until they saw the actual coming of the kingdom? Anyone? Right on. John was there. John saw the actual kingdom. Revelation 1.19, Jesus said to John, Therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. At the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 6, John says that he said to me, These worlds are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And John writes this, I, John, am the one who heard and saw... These things. I heard them. I saw them. The revelation of Jesus Christ given to John. Listen, the revelation is not some hazy, foggy, esoteric vision. Hollywood has done a number on the way we perceive visions or prophecies. As some strange, you know, like Muhammad would have visions. What are you talking about? He would go into epileptic seizures. That is not what happened to John. What John saw was actual. Rick, that's bizarre. How can that be possible? Well, with man it's not possible, but with God all things are possible. And if you read through Revelation and the specificity of it and how John wrote, I don't believe John just kind of had a dream and woke up and went, wow, that was weird, beast this, dragon that. No. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Revelation begins, wide awake, in prayer, and he gets lifted up in a holy vision and sees exactly what Jesus said, what would take place after these things. He saw these things happen. 
God pulls him out of time, if you will, and allows him to see the future, not a possible future, not a hopefully it comes out this way future, but the future. John saw the kingdom in all its glory, the kingdom coming. John saw that before he died in the flesh. And so however you look at it, John was there. And he both saw Jesus in the transfiguration and he saw the coming of the kingdom of God exactly as Jesus said would happen. Meanwhile, back at the transfiguration. Peter's in awe. And he calls for the immediate raising of three tabernacles. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And verse 6 continues on and says, For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Literally, verse 6 can be read, he didn't know what to say. He sees Jesus transfigured. They're shocked. There's no preparation for this. Jesus Jesus didn't take him up the mountain and say, Oh man, watch this. (laughs) He just went up there, and as they're sitting around, all of a sudden, This amazing event. And Peter sees. And no doubt, Peter, James, and John, all three, the only three who were with him at that time, fall on the ground, and they're looking up, and they're blown away, and I can see you know, the sons of thunder, James and John, just cowering on the ground. And Peter looks up, and he didn't know what to say. Can I give some advice here? When you don't know what to say, speaking is often not the best option. <laughs> Proverbs 17.28 says, Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. (laughs) It's one of my favorite verses to share with my kids. When he closes his lips, even a fool is considered prudent. And Peter just, I mean, this is just so Peter. It's part of what we love about him. He blurs this stuff out. Verse 7 says, Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Oh, not Elijah? The greatest prophet? Oh, not Moses the lawgiver? I'm not supposed to listen to either. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And I'll tell you what, in that moment, God silenced every foolish voice of every false prophet and every imposter and every iconic religious figurehead immediately and effectively Right then, you listen to Jesus alone. Nobody else. Verse 8, continuing on, says, All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Jesus alone. This is my son. Listen to him. Not Muhammad. Not Buddha or Krishna or Baha'u'llah. Or Joseph Smith. You'll listen to Jesus. And Peter and John, they both learned this lesson well. Acts 4.12 tells us that the two of them together said there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You'll listen to Jesus. Do what He said. And nobody else. Verse 9, continuing on, says as they were coming down from the mountain... He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. I love verse 10. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. 
it means rising from the dead. (laughs) I mean, that, that is what so many theologians across so many years have done. Seize upon a statement, seize upon a verse, and discuss what it means. It means what he says. He says what he means. It is not so hard as we have made it. What does rising from the dead mean? Man, they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. By the way, in the transfiguration, this is the second time, you Bible students know, this is the second time that God the Father said of Jesus the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He said it twice. The first was at Jesus' baptism. Right before, prior to the beginning of his public ministry. He's baptized. He's 40 uh, days in the wilderness. He comes back to Nazareth. Proclaims himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And off he goes. Now we're at the end of his public ministry. On the Mount of Transfiguration. I know we're only halfway through Mark. But Mark saves the bulk of his gospel for the last week of Jesus' life. And so we're already headed to Jerusalem. We're at the end of His ministry, up on the mountain. Now the second time, it's like bookends for Jesus' ministry. The Father saying, this is my beloved Son, I'm pleased with Him. And this is my beloved Son, I'm pleased with Him. He's pleased before He's done anything, and He's pleased after He's done everything. God is pleased with His Son. But what do the two instances have in common? Death. Both instances have death in common. In the second instance, there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke tells us, chapter 9, verse 31, what Elijah and Moses and Jesus were talking about. Mark doesn't give us that insight. We find this out later. Elijah and Moses, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So in the Transfiguration, part of what was going on there was Jesus being encouraged by Moses and Elijah. The three of them talking about the crucifixion, talking about his imminent death. That's what they were conversing about at the time. But what about at the beginning of his ministry? Well, what happened right before the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased? Jesus was baptized. A picture of death. Of dying to self. Romans 6.4, Paul says, We have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in the newness of life. Now, here's the reason I point this out. They're talking about death when God says, My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, when He speaks with an audible voice. He has just been baptized. That picture of being buried, dying, and coming back to life at the beginning of His ministry, and they hear the audible voice of God... If you want to hear God more clearly, you've got to die. You have to die to yourself. To hear God speak into your life, to hear the affirming and the affectionate voice of the Father, He is far easier to hear clearly when I am dying to myself. Why? Because I am living to Him. Because when I die to self, when I deny self, I'm depending on Him for everything. And the more I depend on the Father, the more I am in tune with His voice, the more I can hear Him. Well, Peter and James and John, they didn't get it, so they changed the subject. Verse 11, they asked Him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Well, they just seen Elijah. They knew the teachings of the scribes. The scribes were just teaching what the prophets said, at least as far as Elijah is concerned. Jewish people believed Elijah was going to come first. Why? Because Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. 
before Messiah comes, Elijah will come and will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. Elijah's going to come. He will be here. Why are they asking? Why are Peter, James, and John asking about Elijah's coming? Why are they saying Elijah must come first? Because they're still trying to figure out the kingdom coming right then. They're still not cross-trained. They're still not realizing there's going to be a suffering beforehand. They saw Elijah and they're still thinking, yeah, but the kingdom's got to be imminent. It's got to be any day now. And so they bring up this issue of Elijah. Verse 12 going on, Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet... How is it written of the Son of Man that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as is written of him. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus says two things here. He says Elijah will come personally. He's very clear about that. I tell you the truth, Malachi was right. Elijah himself will come in person. And he says... Elijah will come positionally. One in the position of Elijah. And that is John the Baptist. And the rest of Scripture makes that very clear. Luke 1.17, the angel said to Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So, Jesus says Elijah has come, in a way. Positionally. John came as an Elijah-type figure in the spirit, in the power of Elijah. But understand, though John was the positional Elijah, he was not the personal Elijah. In fact, he never claimed to be when he was asked about that. Keep your finger here and turn over real quickly to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, two Gospels over. Verse 19 tells us this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, (coughs) excuse me, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ, not Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Okay. Well, are you the prophet? And they're referring to the prophet that Moses prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18, who is actually Jesus. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. And they said to him, well, who are you? So we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, quoted in all four Gospels. He says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. I am the voice in the wilderness. In the spirit, in the power of Elijah, positionally like Elijah, but not personally Elijah. And this is part of the reason that I believe that one of the two witnesses spoken of in Revelation chapter 11 is Elijah. I think it's Elijah and Moses, who will be here on the earth during the tribulation, first three and a half years, preaching the gospel from Jerusalem, blowing the minds of people on earth. They have all the power that we see that Elijah and Moses had. And there are many other reasons for that. And if you want to get into that, go to Revelation chapter 11 on the website in the Revelation study and think those things through. 
But I believe Elijah is going to show up there preaching in the tribulation, the final forerunner in person of the second coming of Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus affirms back there in Mark chapter 9. But I want you to see something here that's easy to skip over. (coughs) In all this talk about Elijah, Elijah is not the issue. Look at the middle of what Jesus says. Hear it again. How is it written that the Son of Man, of the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You're asking me about Elijah. Elijah has come, positionally as John. He will come personally. But but guys, guys, you're missing the point. How is it that the Son of Man must suffer? Many things and be treated with contempt. What's he doing? Cross training. And you'll see Jesus do this all the way from here to Jerusalem. He keeps bringing them back to the cross. Back to the cross time and time again. I'm going to suffer. Guys, you need to pay attention. You need to get this down. They ask a question over here. They wander off. They have apostolic ADD. And He pulls them back. He pulls them back to the cross. Pressed between the two comings of Elijah, that is John the Baptist and Elijah himself, between these two comings is the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, in between these two comings, the Son of Man must suffer. Isaiah 53. Now, from the mountain of glory, which is a great place to be discipled by Jesus. I mean, that's where I want to be discipled by Jesus. In the mountain of glory. Just us. You know? Just the close-knit family around Jesus, just together. And we'll leave all the outside world and the legislators and everybody, just leave them out, you know. Let's just stay up on the mountain. But we have to come off the mountain of glory and descend into, unfortunately, often the valley of despair. The valley of conflict. The valley of difficulty. And we have a dramatic scene change here from the end of what Jesus says in verse 13 to the beginning of verse 14. We go from the heavenly Father blessing His Son and now we come to a horrified Father bemoaning His Son. Verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, <coughs> pardon me, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes were arguing with them. So you got the disciples, the nine because the three were with Jesus. So you got the nine there, you've got the scribes, and they are just in argument. Back and forth. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? I love how Jesus takes an argument and turns it into a discussion. You know, What are you discussing? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Now, quickly understand this. Jewish tradition held that a mute spirit was one of the most, if not impossible, one of the most difficult spirits to cast out. Why? Because they believed you had to say a spirit's name to cast it out. And if it made the person mute, you couldn't get the information to do the exorcism. So here's this mute spirit, very difficult to cast out. Obviously the apostles had tried. Verse 18, the man continues, Whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. Thank you so much, Brian. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. 
Because back in Mark chapter 6, we saw that Jesus gave all of the apostles the power to cast out demons. And they can't do it. Verse 19, Jesus answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation. Unbelieving generation. That is, without belief. Who's he talking about in the unbelieving generation? I think it was the disciples and the scribes. Both of them. The disciples were unbelieving because they were not able to cast this demon out. The scribes were unbelieving because they were just looking for a reason to fight. And they're all having this big argument. This this is so typical religion. They're having an argument while this man is sitting there in pain. They're debating and discussing their belief systems while this boy is writhing on the ground possessed and in anguish. And sometimes we just need to shut off the debates and go about compassionately loving a lost world. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. 1 Timothy 6.3 says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, no, not those of Pastor Rick, not those of our current statement of faith for the Bridge Christian Fellowship, not those of our denominational system, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, if you don't advocate that, well, you're conceited, you understand nothing. Paul says, he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arrive, arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And that's what's going on here. You know, this argument. Jesus is just, this is why he says, unbelieving generation. Because they're arguing while this boy is writhing. Try not to engage in religious arguments. Avoid disputes. We are not here, we've said before, we are not here to win arguments, we're here to win souls. So avoid that stuff. These are the stuff of unbelief. I know there are churches right down the road that would teach a different end times doctrine than what I understand the Bible to teach. Than what I would teach. So they must not be brothers and sisters in Christ? Absolutely they are. They'll just be more surprised than I am when Jesus comes. But we could engage in all kinds of banter about the things we don't agree on, or we can agree that Jesus is the only way to be saved and bring Jesus to the lost world. So people are disputing in unbelief rather than going to Jesus in faith. And that's what he says, bring him to me. Bring, bring him to me. If you've got a problem in your life, bring someone to Jesus. Don't bring him to your doctrinal statement. Verse 20, continuing on, they brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the Spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Wow. I mean, can you just for a moment get a a sense of compassion for this dad? We don't even know where the mom is. Maybe she's given up. Maybe she's just too discouraged or despondent. Maybe she's not even in the picture anymore. We just don't know. But we have a a father here who, who is beside himself. Verse 22, It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. 
But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can... All things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Now understand, it is never, it's never a matter of if God can. It is always a matter of if we believe He can. And Jesus points that out very quickly. It's not is it possible is God up to this task. Of course He is. He is always up to it. He's always able. He's always capable to do whatever. But the if is our faith. The if is what we bring to the table. If you can. Charles Spurgeon said, If all the angels in heaven were to march me by in, or march by me in file and assure me that God would keep his word, I should say, I did not require you to tell me that. For the Lord never fails to be as good as his word. God is so true that the witness of angels would be a superfluity. If my father were to make a statement, I certainly should not call in his servant to confirm it. And Jesus says here very quick, uh, clearly, all things are possible to him who believes. So our question tonight is, do we believe that? Is everything possible? Does God have absolute ability to meet each and every need? Of course he does. The if is ours. And I love how the man responds Shouting out, I do believe, help my unbelief. And that's why in this story, I believe the Father was a believer. The unbelief, when Jesus says, oh, unbelieving generation, He's not talking about the Father. He's got to be talking about the scribes. And talking about even His own disciples and their dispute. He's not talking about the Father. Well, wait a minute, Rick, He says if. I know He says if. Have you never said if? Don't we all from time to time find ourselves saying if? (laughs) Lord, if it's Your will. If this father had no faith, he would not have come looking for Jesus in the first place. So he is already coming with some degree of faith. Maybe a little bit. Maybe not a huge mountain of faith, but he's coming with some faith. He had to have some measure of belief. And so when he cries out, I do believe, help my unbelief, I think, wow, that is the prayer of a believer. It's one of my favorite prayers to pray. I too believe. Help my unbelief. That is a believer's prayer. Because, you know, it seems to me the more I believe in Jesus, the more I see my unbelief. The more I mature in my faith, the more I realize I need grace. The longer I spend with the Lord, the more I see how desperately I need to spend more time with the Lord. And so, to cry out, I do believe, help my unbelief, this is not the unbelief of rebellion, that's the scribes. It's not the unbelief of disappointment, that's the nine apostles who couldn't heal. This father's unbelief, I would call it the unbelief of the unimaginable. The unbelief of the unimaginable. What do you mean? Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, he is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. My problem of belief, perhaps yours as well, is not rebellious unbelief, it is not disappointed unbelief, it is unbelief in the unimaginable. Lord, I can't imagine how you're going to pull this one off. But if you can, please, 
when you feel that way, hear Jesus say, If, and immediately cry out as with this Father, I do believe, help my unbelief. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering because he was not a showboater, I add that, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit. I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Great caveat there. Jesus not only casts the demon out, he says, and no returning. This one is now mine. This one now belongs to me. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. Think he was? Might have been sleeping. Might have just been so ravaged by this spirit as it came out of him. Or perhaps he was, in fact, dead. Why do you point that out, Rick? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he was dead or alive, lying there on the ground. It just doesn't matter because we're told in the very next verse, after crying, well, let's see, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. So he may have died right there. He may have flatlined. No big deal. Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. He may have been so beat up and so bedraggled and so wiped out that he looked dead. doesn't matter. Jesus raised him up. He may have just been passed out of sleep. Jesus raised him up. And he got up, verse 27 tells us. I love how G. Campbell Morgan sums up the whole story. He puts it this way. He found disputing scribes, a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples. And he silenced the scribes, comforted the father, healed the boy, and instructed the disciples. Jesus covers all the bases. Isn't he marvelous? Isn't he wonderful? Well, I want to hone in on something here. And that is the disciples' instruction, because I think it is instructive for us as well. Back in Mark chapter 6, as I said before, the disciples were empowered to cast out demons. They were enabled to do that by Jesus. In this case, they failed, not because the power wasn't with them, but because they took their eyes off the source of that power. They apparently by this time thought, we've done it before, we can do it again. We were empowered by the Lord back here, therefore, we should be able to do it now. And the problem was in the we should be able to do it now. Instead of He enables us to do this. They're disappointed. They're defeated because they trusted in themselves. And by the way, that's where disappointment finds fertile soil. If you want to be disappointed in your life, trust yourself. And you will be disappointed. What does the Bible tell us? Peter quotes Isaiah 28.16. This is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. You put your trust in Jesus, no disappointment. Trust yourself, you're going to be defeated and disappointed just like the apostles were in this instance. And verse 28 says, When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Anyone reading the King James Version right now? Okay, does the New King James add two words at the end of that? So it's hanging on to the Old King James. Good for the New King James. Prayer and fasting. New American Standard Bible drops and fasting. Which is unfortunate, and by the way, rare. 
Now, <laughs> how much do I even want to get into this? <laughs> These two words are omitted from verse 29 in the New American Standard Bible, in the NIV, in many Bible translations. Why are they omitted? Well, because there are some... Uh, some manuscripts that don't contain these two words. And some manuscripts do. And I'm talking about ancient manuscripts that they translate the original Greek from into the English and into our translation. And there are some manuscripts that don't have the words added to it. Now, it's not going to make or break anyone's salvation. This is one of those things we don't want to get into disputes about. Okay, blah, blah, blah. King James only, NASB only, whatever. I do think the King James is a phenomenal translation and I would use it I just can't. <laughs> just because I would spend more time explaining the Elizabethan into English than I spend explaining the Greek into English. Okay, New American Standard Bible also is a phenomenal translation. Both the King James and the NASB are word-for-word translations. Both of them seek to go specific to the words. But sometimes you have something like this come up, which is why personally when I study the Bible, I have a New American Standard Bible and I have a King James open side-by-side. Side. That's how I choose to study. Because I catch things that might be missing in one or the other. And I think important things, and this is one of them. This kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. The parallel verse, which is Mark 17.21, has that sentence in parentheses in the New American Standard Bible. No parentheses or brackets in the King James. But it says, Matthew 17.21, but this time, kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Well, at least it's parenthesized there. In the NASB. Why are they omitted? Why are they not there? Again, some early manuscripts, some earlier manuscripts actually don't contain those two words. And so some say, well, maybe they were added later. Now, were they? There's really good support historically and otherwise, both from reliable manuscripts and from quotes of early church leaders, that those two words were original, that those two words should be included. But I'm not going to get into modern textual criticism beyond that tonight. There's a more critical and biblically substantiated point that Jesus is making. And if we go into all this textual stuff, we will miss the point. So all that to say, don't miss this point. There is a dynamic difference between fast prayer and prayer with fasting. And I think the problem with these apostles not being able to cast the demon out is they were throwing up fast prayer. And they were not praying with fasting. A dynamic difference. Fast prayers are offered up quick. That, that's okay, by the way. Fast prayers, sometimes you got to. Sometimes you have no alternative. You know? The storm is hitting. And you start praying. The earthquake hits. And you pray immediately. Fast prayers, it's okay. Nehemiah prayed a fast prayer. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 4. Artaxerxes notices Nehemiah. He's the cupbearer. And he's there before Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah apparently is normally a pretty positive guy. But not on this particular day. And Artaxerxes the king notices. And he says, Nehemiah, what's up with you? Why are you depressed? Why are you sad? And the king said to me, what would you request? And we're told in Nehemiah 2, 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Now put yourself in the court right there. Watch what just happened. Nehemiah doesn't go, as the king says, what would you request? Nehemiah doesn't go, 
Hang on a second. I'll be back in three days. Okay, I'm going to go fast and pray and process this. And then, no, he just in his mind went, "Oh Lord, help me." Okay, <laughs> here's what I need, King Artaxerxes: quick prayer, fast prayer, effective prayer. But there's a difference between this kind of praying, which tends to be done on the fly, and praying with fasting. Quick prayer typically is not faith increasing prayer. Quick prayer is offered up in all the faith you have in the moment. Prayer with fasting increases faith because as you take time to fast, you can't fast in two or three minutes. If that were the case, I'd be fasting all the time. Yeah, I fasted today, you know, right after my mid afternoon snack and dinner. I fasted for an entire hour. It was a very special time. (laughs) Fasting takes time, it takes focus. It takes getting centered on Jesus and spending time praying to Jesus. Prayer with fasting requires digging in because there's no such thing as a fast fast. Daniel could explain that to us. Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, after discovering in the scroll of Jeremiah that their 70 years of, of Babylonian captivity was almost up. We're told, Daniel says, I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Do you think that was momentary? Just gathering the materials to get into that kind of praying would take some time. The issue Jesus brings to the fore here is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness takes time. And if you are praying and you're waiting and you're praying and you're waiting and you're not getting a response, praise the Lord. He's given you time to grow your faith. To increase your faith. I've said before, we are not called to fight fires. We are called to be faithful. Firefighters are called to respond to emergencies. The faithful are called to dig in and wait on the Lord. And that's why the apostles couldn't cast out this demon. They were not waiting on the Lord. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Verse 30, continuing on. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching the disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. What is he doing? Cross-training. Cross-training. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Again, we talked about this Sunday. He takes them on the trek throughout the Galilee to teach them, to get them into this, to help them to understand what was about to happen and what it would mean. Teaching Messiah before he could come in glory, he had to suffer and die. Back in verse 12 of of chapter 9, yet how is it written that the Son of Man, that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, just as then, we need to see see Jesus completely. The apostles needed to see the whole Jesus. Not just the glorious Jesus, but also the suffering Jesus. And we need to see Him both as the Lamb who was slain and the glorious coming King. He is not either or, He is both and. The one who poured out His blood for our sins and the one who comes back in great glory. Verse 33. They came to Capernaum. Okay, remember Capernaum is Jesus' home base. Whose house did Jesus stay at when He was in Capernaum? Peter's, Peter's house. Okay. Came to Capernaum and when He was in the house, so I would make an assumption, probably Peter's house, 
he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? (laughs) But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. How is cross-training going so far? Verse 35, sitting down, he called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. After all, doesn't that describe Jesus? Do you want to be first? This is the deal. Taking a child, maybe Peter's child. We know Peter was married, remember? Jesus healed his mother-in-law, so he had to be married. We don't know anything about Peter's wife or kids. Perhaps this was Peter's son. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. What do kids have to do with it? Now don't miss this. There is another time when Jesus brings the children in and says, Become like children. In fact, in just a few verses. That's not this time. He's using this child as an example. He is pulling in a child because in both Jewish culture and Greek culture, adulthood is idealized. Childhood is marginalized. The least important person in society was the child. Children should remain silent. Keep them out of the way. It is adulthood that we all are excited about and proud of. The child was the least important person. And so Jesus grabs the child and pulls the child in and says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. You receive the least of these. The least important. You know, I had forgotten how much children demand self-denial out of their parents. I had forgotten. My kids had grown older and had for the most part become pretty self-sufficient. Corey and and Hannah and Hayden. and, and, And wow, going back three years ago to square one and bringing one-year-old David into our house and and four-year-old Naomi. Anna Marie was a bit older. But having little ones again, you know what I realized? Your kids really can't do much to advance your career. (laughs) They don't contribute a whole lot to the household. They certainly never help out with the bills. What do they do? They require self-denial from mom and dad. They're not there to make your life easier. They make your life, in my opinion, better, but not easier. And Jesus says if you receive a child, someone who cannot help you, someone who will not necessarily benefit you, someone who cannot bear up your life and your plans and your future, they're just there and they require your help. You receive a child like that. I love how Jesus says, you receive me. And you receive my Father. So I would suggest if you're having a little trouble with self-denial, spend some time with children. Volunteer for our children's ministry. I'm sure Leslie would be happy to hook you up on Sunday mornings. If you're having a selfishness issue, go work with kids. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. What is John doing? He's changing the subject. He says, We tried to prevent him. Note this. Watch this. Because he was not following us. Oh. 
Do you think John was understanding what Jesus was just saying? We saw someone doing some work in your name, Lord, but he's not one of us. Guy wasn't following us. Not one of our own. This is early denominational zeal, is what it is, right here. (laughs) Not part of our particular framework. And so Jesus responds, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Literally, he who is not against us is on our side. And then he says, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. What did Jesus just do? He just demarcated the line of fellowship. In other words, He laid it out clearly. Here is who you choose to fellowship with. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as good Baptists. No, sorry. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as good Presbyterians. Whoever will come and help you out because you happen to be a fellow Methodist. That is not what He says. Whoever will give you a cup of water because of your name in Christ. You are Christians. You are not Brigidocios. He says, as of Christ. As of Christ. So anyone who comes along and says, hey, can I help you out? They're helping you out in the name of Christ because you're a Christian. Accept them. Because they're walking with Jesus too. And I love how Jesus just kind of knocks it right off the shelf. Christ, that is our name, that is our fellowship, that is our attachment to the larger church body, which is far larger than this farm, than Oak Harbor, than Anacortes, than Washington State, than America. Our Christian fellowship reaches out into the entire world of every single man, woman, and child who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so we embrace that. Yeah, but there are people out there who teach, teach some stuff that's a little off, Rick. I know. And we'll all be straightened out on the things that we taught that we were a little off on. But we keep our faith in and on Jesus. Just Jesus. Remember, Jesus alone. Jesus alone. It's the first indication, early indication, that perhaps the church might be far bigger than we think. You know what? I get this picture of Charlie Brown and Linus standing there. And Linus is writing the letter to the Great Pumpkin, you know? And Charlie Brown says, When are you going to stop believing in the Great Pumpkin? And Linus says, as soon as you stop believing in that guy in the red suit with the white beard who says, ho, ho, ho. And Charlie Brown says, classy, I love this. Clearly we're separated by denominational differences. <laughs> it's marvelous, the wisdom of Charles M. Schultz. Unity with those who are on our side. If they're on the side of Christ Jesus, they are on my side. But that kind of unity, watch this, it denies the self. It demands that we deny ourselves. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. Ouch. And then Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. (laughs) It is better for you to enter life crippled than than having two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. I've asked before, let me just ask again, does Jesus believe in hell? What does 
What does hell is an unquenchable fire really mean? It means what he says. What is unquenchable fire? Fire you can't quench. Hi. Verse 44, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He says, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. (laughs) If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. Pop! (laughs) It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. And I have a feeling there may be a few of those. What's your problem? I took him literally. That's what I did. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Wow. Now, stop there for just a second. What is Jesus talking about here? The disciples keep focusing back on self. And if you go back over this chapter... And make a mental note of this every time Jesus talks about the cross and they respond talking about themselves. He talks about the cross and then they have a discussion about who's the greatest. He talks about the cross and they bring up Elijah. He talks about the cross and time after time they keep sliding back into self mode. Us! That guy wasn't one of us! And so Jesus keeps bringing them right back to the cross. And the cross will cause you to lose a hand. And the cross will cause you to lose a foot. The cross will cause you to lose vision. Lose your eye. But better to go to the cross than Jesus says to go to hell. This is self-mutilation. Now he's not talking physically. Please don't come limping in here on Sunday morning going, Pastor Rick! (laughs) You know? Can you give me a Bible please? I mean, don't do this stuff. Literally, not physically, he's talking spiritually. Whatever in your life, and very seriously, gang, whatever in your life deters discipleship, cut it out. If it's deterring following after Jesus, cut it out. Stop it. Throw it out. Pluck it out. Get rid of it. What Jesus is doing here is elevating for us how serious this really is. The kingdom is a serious thing. Entrance into the kingdom of God costs Jesus Christ every last drop of blood. And I want my HBO? I mean, really? Cut it off. Mark 8.35 again, Jesus said, going back to the last chapter, whoever wishes to save his life will what? Lose it. Someone says, I'm just losing it. Yeah, that's because you're trying to save it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. And then Jesus, I love this, makes an abrupt turn from, from warning against the fires of hell to instantly clarifying discipleship. The fires of discipleship. Hang with me, this is the last thing. But you got to get this. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. 1 Corinthians 3.13, one of my favorite passages, Paul says, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, 
because it's to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. That's what I call salvation by the seat of your pants. Okay? And your pants are singed. Because in this passage, Paul is talking about saved people. And he's saying, saved, there are going to be a lot of saved people who, who enter into the kingdom or who are called up with Jesus into heaven. And they're saved. And there are going to be those who have worked for the kingdom, who have lived their lives for Jesus, who cut out all the garbage, and they will receive reward for that. And there will be those who believed. But they are raptured by the seat of their pants. They're the ones you're going to see. And they'll be dancing around in heaven going, you know, trying to put the fire out. I mean, seriously, who wants... Trying to put out flames on their fanny. It's just not... Now, Paul says it's going to be tested by fire. Every man, Jesus says, will be salted with fire. What does that mean? Before we finish tonight, you got to put on your thinking yarmulke. Okay? Your Jewish thinking cap. For Jesus uses the phrase here, salted with fire. And he alludes to something that Jewish understanding would pick up right away. And these were Jewish disciples, right? What is this understanding? Salting with fire recalls the Levitical law of sacrifice. Let me just read it to you. Leviticus 2.11 No grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven. You shall not offer it up and smoke any leaven. Why? What is leaven a picture of? Sin. Don't bring leaven into your offering. Brothers and sisters in Christ, don't bring sin into your offering. I'll let you think that through. So no leaven. Don't offer leaven up in smoke or any honey as an offering by fire to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, he says, you shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. No leaven, no honey, but, but use salt. So the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. And then... The Levitical law states, with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. That means the grain offering. It means the the burnt offering. It means the free will offering. It means the offerings of of meat, rams, and sheep, and pigeons, and all of the different offerings. You put salt on it. You salt the offering in the fire. No leaven, no honey, only salt. Very quickly, three reasons why. Number one, salt develops thirst. Salt develops thirst. And that gain is our calling as disciples of Christ. Revelation 22.17 The Spirit and the Bride say, Come! And let the one who hears say, Come! And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life take it without cost. Salt develops thirst. Secondly, salt draws out flavor. You all know this. You pour some salt on cantaloupe. Oh man, it makes the cantaloupe sweet. I can't eat apples without putting salt on them because it pulls the flavor of the apple out. Salt draws out flavor. That is part of our calling in this world. Not only to cause people to be thirsty, but also to draw flavor out. So that people would see, 
that Christians make the world a tastier place. Not a dry, dull, flat, lifeless, sour, religious place. That's not our calling. What does the Bible say? Psalm 38 or Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Salt draws out flavor. Now you might say, well, honey is sweet. I get why no leaven on the sacrifice. Why no honey? on the sacrifice. We've gone through this whole dietary shift you all are somewhat familiar with. I've at least shared a little bit. But we now don't use sugar. We're using pure raw honey. And I love it. I'm a honey fanatic. I put honey in everything. But we've discovered with honey that honey is sweet. But it breaks down in heat. We have sometimes pure raw honey will be chunky and kind of gross looking and you need to put it in the oven to soften it up. But you got to keep it just on low heat. If you heat it up too much, all the nutrients go out, the taste starts to go out, it gets ruined. That's the honey you buy at the store. Honey breaks down in heat. I pour honey into my tea every morning. It's gone in a matter of seconds. It just dissipates into the tea. Honey breaks down in heat. Disciples, listen. Salt develops thirst. Salt draws out flavor. Salt does not break down in heat. It doesn't break down when it's heated. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, Jesus says, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Disciples, if you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him, you will go into the heat. Go in salty. (laughs) I'm a salty guy. (laughs) Go in salty. Salt does not break down when you go into the heat. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 2.20 For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if you do what is right and suffer, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. You've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving an example, leaving an example for you to follow in His steps. And Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. You're going to be salted with fire. And when you go into the fire, salted with the grace of Jesus Christ, that salt won't break down. The fire will not ruin you. You won't dissipate like honey or leaven. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Gang, let's be different than the world. Developing thirst, drawing out flavor, not breaking down. Let's be different than the world, but let's not have differences with each other. Have salt in yourselves, be at peace one with another. 
We need to learn this. Man, I need to learn this. Don't squabble over denominational differences. Don't worry if this church or that pastor are outshining you or this particular fellowship. Rejoice that the name of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed wherever it's being proclaimed. And let's us keep doing that here. And we'll end with this verse, Colossians 4.6. Paul says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Let's bow. Oh, Jesus, thank You for discipleship. Thank You for walking us through. I thank You, Lord, for allowing us to be um, present with the training of the disciples. For we see in them, and Lord, truly, I I say some things tongue-in-cheek, but Lord, we don't judge Peter or James or John or the nine who, who, who failed to cast out the demon. Lord, because we see ourselves in them. We can so relate to trying things on our own power and forgetting to look to the source of our power. Jesus, it's You. Jesus alone. And so we thank You that vicariously we can watch You train the disciples and we ourselves can right here, right now, 2,000 years later, be trained by You. Lord Jesus, may we never forget the cross. May we recognize, as we said before, You as the Lamb slain and You as the glorious King. And may we, in seeing Your cross, be prepared and ready when the time comes that we must take up our cross and follow after You. We pray in Jesus' name.